after the bodhisattva's um, practice and realization of the truth, the way to the end of suffering, uh, it is said that he became the Buddha and that he spent the next seven weeks just around the Bodhi tree, uh, just enjoying the, um, the liberation of his heart and mind from all forms of suffering and the causes of suffering. And this was the culmination of his hundreds of lifetimes as a Bodhisattva. So we can be sure that if you work at something for hundreds of lifetimes, you're probably going to enjoy it when you uh, accomplish your task. So, <clears throat> it said that even for one whole week, he just gazed at the Bodhi tree for a week. <clears throat> so that's... It's hard to imagine. And it is said that, you know, we can't imagine. And the, the, the range of a Buddha's mind is unimaginable. It's infinite. They can know anything they put their mind to. It's hard for us to contemplate what that would mean. But when it came time and the Buddha was prevailed upon by uh, beings to share his understanding, when he first spoke about his realization, he went to find the five ascetics that he had practiced with for some number of years. <coughs> And when he spoke to them, they were skeptical. When they first saw him, they thought, oh, he's fallen off the wagon. Mm -hmm. He's kind of, he's taking food and everything, you know. <coughs> he's taking care of himself. That can't be the way to liberation. But he prevailed upon them to just listen. And when he spoke to them, he spoke about his realizations in what is known as the Four Noble Truths. And wherever the teachings of the Buddha have gone, from India to Tibet to China to Southeast, all the countries of Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka, and now coming here to the West, wherever the teachings of the Buddha have gone, uh, the foundation for all of those teachings is the Four Noble Truths. But when you look at the manifestation of Tibetan Buddhism or Zen Buddhism of Japan or Theravada Buddhism out of Burma or Thailand, Sri Lanka, it looks very different. The forms of practice, the rituals, the, uh, uh, the paraphernalia, the regalia of uh, monastics and the holy people of that particular tradition, it looks all very different. But actually, underneath all that uh, superficial appearance of differences is this understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So it's important that we begin to really understand how our practice here is grounded in, rooted in the Four Noble Truths. So that we can re rest assured that <clears throat> what we're doing is actually what the Buddha taught. <clears throat> that it's not just a, kind of a spin-off that's Something like what the Buddha said, but actually that is really what the Buddha said. <coughs> so when he spoke about the Four Noble Truths, you know, the first Noble Truth is the truth of Dukkha, second Noble Truth is the cause of this Dukkha is craving, clinging, 
third noble truth is that there's an end to this craving and clinging and therefore an end to dukkha, suffering. And the fourth noble truth is there is a path to be developed for anyone to realize this end of, end of dukkha. So what we're doing here is we're developing this path. Each one of us is developing the path factors within our own heart and within our own awareness, because that is the practice to be developed uh, in order to realize the third noble truth, the end of, the end of suffering, the end of dukkha. <coughs> so the fourth noble truth is really the Buddha's skillful understanding of how to approach this task of living life fully as a human being. This is the form that we have now. We're human beings, we hear the Buddhist teachings, we've got to bring the teachings into our life as a human being, and to the extent that we can develop the path within this life of a human being, that's the work. That's what we have the opportunity to do in this lifetime. So the Eightfold Path is really three trainings. There are eight factors, and they're collected into three trainings. And each of these trainings addresses a different level of, or a different kind of, or a different manifestation of dukkha, suffering in our life. So the first training addresses the interpersonal suffering that we endure. The, uh, the way that we relate to one another through speaking and acting causes us and causes others a lot of suffering. <clears throat> and as I've mentioned before, you only need to look at the, uh, the front page of any newspaper, any day, and it is a catalog of humanity harming one another by not keeping the precepts. Killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, use of intoxicants, and not speaking the truth. I mean, it's so, <clears throat> it's so obvious that this is really painful to live, to live in a society, to live in, personal, in our personal relationships with people that are not careful, that are not considerate, that then act and speak in a way that causes us harm, causes themselves harm. And so this first training of sila requires mindful awareness, which is what we're doing here. We're cultivating this ability to remember to recognize the present moment's experience. So that when we are in a conversation, or when we have the opportunity to act in the world, we have a moment of recognizing the present stimulation to which we're going to respond or react. And if we don't have that basic awareness of what's going on and how am I going to react, then we're just an automaton. We're just acting out willy-nilly. Right? Just deeply conditioned habits of mind. And we, we've certainly seen some habits of mind today. <clears throat> but if we're not practicing mindfulness of our interactions with one another, 
we can be we can we can act in such a way that causes harm, confusion. Uh, you know, where we the result is that we don't trust one another. We're very suspicious of one another. We feel afraid of one another. Uh, very competitive and kind of brutal at times. So this kind of practice, becoming aware of the moment that you're about to speak, the moment you're about to act, monitoring, being aware of the intention, the motivation, is addresses the acting out of tormented mind. So when we're confused, or when we're caught in aversion, or we're caught in desire, you know, we're, we're blinded. We don't see. We don't see things clearly, and we just act out in a way that causes harm. This is a transgressive uh, quality of the torments of the mind. And it takes, you know, practicing awareness of our intention before speaking and acting to begin to tame the mind, tame the mind's acting out. That's the first training of the Noble Eightfold Path. The three steps, or the three factors of that is uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And when the Buddha tales about right <coughs> livelihood, right speech, right, right this, right that, it's right from the Buddha's perspective. And the Buddha, when asked, what do you teach? He says, I teach just one thing only. I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. That's it. So, right for the Buddha is that which leads to the end of dukkha. Metaphysically right, that's not, the, that's not his concern. So much as, does this behavior, does this action, does this belief, does this thought lead to suffering? Is it suffering itself? Or does it lead to suffering? Or does it not? And if it leads away from suffering, that's the right thought. That's the right action. That's the right speech. That's the right livelihood. And if it leads towards suffering, that the Buddha said, that's unskillful. That's unskillful. It leads to more suffering. But even though we can, and we all do, and we all are, pretty good human beings. You know, we're not, you know, we're not too brutal with one another. Nevertheless, even though we're not saying and doing what we know will cause harm to others, sometimes our thoughts, which we would, you know, our thoughts have very, can get very obsessive around what we'd like to do and like to say and how we'd like to react in relation to you know, others' behaviors and misbehaviors. And, and we get angry and we get, you know, frustrated and obsessed and raging and resentful. And while we're not acting it out and harming them, we still suffer. And so the Buddha offered a second training to address this internal suffering. Not the suffering that we're causing by acting out, but internally. And that training is the training in samadhi, or the development of mindfulness. Now, the three elements of samadhi are right effort, the skillful effort, right uh, mindfulness, and right uh, concentration or stability of mind. And when we practice that, as we're doing here, we're able to have some greater continuity or frequency of 
remembering to recognize the present moment. And when we do that, rather than just being obsessed with one of these tormented states of mind, when, if and when they arise, we get to see them. We see that we're angry. We see that the mind is filled with resentment or disdain or aggression of some sort. We see it. We don't just see it like we're going to act it out. We see it through the lens of remembering to recognize it. And when we're able to see that, and we, then it arrests. Awareness alone arrests the further development and proliferation of these states of mind. We still have to kind of, kind of hang, hang in there. To, or if we, don't, if we slip, or to the extent that we are not continuously aware of these mental states, we'll be taken over by them and we'll be overwhelmed and obsessing. So to the extent that we can be aware of them and recognize them and just go, whoa, okay, okay, okay. And maybe we use an antidote, you know, loving kindness for any form of aversion, practicing uh, you know, forgiveness if we're into blaming others, practicing uh, some kind of letting go, or you know, if we're caught up in lust and desire. So there's ways of being mindful of these unskillful states of mind, just through mindfulness. And that can begin to calm the mind down. The continuity of mindfulness calms the mind down into a kind of a kind of seclusion, a kind of tranquility. The seclusion is being secluded from these torments. But it takes, as, as we know, it takes some <laughs> really energetic perseverance. That right, that right effort, the first of those three elements in mindfulness, is you know pretty persevering. It's going to be persevering effort. That's like moment to moment to moment to moment in order to calm the mind down, in order to calm the minds obsessing with the torments, influenced by the torments. Nevertheless, conditions are entirely unpredictable in our life. Things happen that you least expect. And we can't always be sure that we're going to be able to marshal the energy, be aware, and remember to recognize. So the Buddha said there is these potential, there's these little mind bombs, these latent torments in the mind, the tendency to react in these unskillful ways just lays in the mind as a potential. Maybe right now, you're not really obsessing with anger, and fear, and jealousy, and self-pity. But conditions can change, and the mind gets inflamed. So the Buddha said, in order to address the latency of these tendencies in the mind, we need a stronger, I mean a more powerful, and yet it's a more subtle, training. The third training of the Noble Eightfold Path is a training in the development of wisdom. That's what we're also practicing here. Practicing wisdom is practicing insight. Because we, we practice the mindfulness, and we, we open to our experience in order to understand it. And we see, we begin to understand how we misunderstand experience. And because we misunderstand it, the mind is conditioned to believe and think that, oh, you know, getting angry is a skillful thing to do here. 
And, you know, we, we all think that there are times when it's really skillful to get angry. And yet, anger is our own suffering. It causes ourselves suffering. So, that, that can't always be skillful. Okay. Just incidentally. <clears throat> I was in Thailand one time, ready to fly from Bangkok down to one of the islands, Koh Samoy, I think down in southern Thailand. And um, <clears throat> I'd made my reservation a long time before, so I had a flight to fly on a certain day. I showed up on the day that I was to fly, and uh, I got to the counter and gave him my ticket to check in, and said, oh, uh, you know, you didn't call yesterday to confirm your reservation, so you don't have a seat on this flight. I said, what? I bought the ticket? Here it is. I got a flight. I got a seat on this flight. And they said, "Yeah, but you're supposed to. You're supposed to call the day before to confirm it." And I said, "Nobody told me I was supposed to call." I was so upset. I was just. I was just really indignant and angry, and just and, and here's this poor, not poor, just this young ticket agent behind the counter, just listening to me go ballistic, like. What? You mean you're not going to get a seat for me? I paid for that seat, didn't I? You know, and after I kind of spent myself and ah, dumped my anger on her, she looks at me and she says, that's not nice. <laughs> which really, which was really, really interesting because she did not buy into my anger. You know, she wasn't moved by my anger. My anger didn't scare her. And it really showed me how dysfunctional, how much, how dysfunctional anger is as a strategy for dealing with your own frustration. It's just totally, I mean, it's just totally useless. Okay, so that's why we practice wisdom, <laughs> so that we can understand, why do I still think getting angry, getting upset, being fearful is still a skillful strategy for dealing with life situations? Well, because I don't understand yet that they're dysfunctional, that they don't work. Okay, so we practice Vipassana, learning how these states of mind work, what's their nature. So, this is the wisdom practice of the Noble Eightfold Path, and there are two, two factors. Right thought, right view, I should say, right view is first, which means the understanding of the way not to suffer. How to understand the situation and not suffer. And the second of the factors of the wisdom practice is right thought, or right intention. And we understand it here as right attitude in how we practice. So I'm going to speak about this wisdom practice uh, of these two elements tonight. Right thought, right view. Usually, right view is first, but I want to speak about right thought first. Because we start our practice with wrong thought. <laughs> so, you know, we're born, we're brought up in a family, we're in a particular village, <coughs> a culture, in a society, and our parents, as soon as we're, as soon as they can, parents and other caregivers, as soon as they start talking to us, they are conditioning how we see the world. We learn to see the world <coughs> through their eyes. We learn to accept, accept and assume <coughs> their beliefs, their, their assumptions, their way of 
viewing life. That's conditioning. And then they pass us off to teachers and uh, other spiritual authorities and peers and uncles and aunts and all kinds of people that we also continue to learn from. And eventually we get into the school system and we get into the you know government uh, regulations and they're imposing their views and opinions on us along with how we understand the culture, uh, schooling, society, economy, every, everything we have learned from others. <clears throat> this is our conditioning. Now when we watch a news clip on TV or on online, we watch a news clip, you know, a 30 second news clip. And we see, boom, somebody had their phone on, recording something that ends up being a newsworthy event. And we see and we hear exactly what happened. Right? We saw it for ourselves. We can see it. We can hear it. And then after they show the clip, then they have these commentators come on and tell you what you saw. Or tell you how you should understand what you saw. And they got, you know, political commentators spin it left, some spin it right, economic commentators spin it this way, them that way, sociologists and psychologists spin it this way, spin it that way. You know, at the end of 30 minutes of commentary, you don't know what you saw. <laughs> you know what you saw, but you don't know how to understand what you saw. Confused. You're conditioned, you're saying, yeah, it's this way, but you've heard these other people say, no, it's really that way, and somebody else says that way. And there's so many views and opinions about and different ways of understanding something. How, how are you going to know what is skillful? Well, if all views and opinions were headed towards what is skillful, there'd be more alignment, but they aren't. Okay. So, now that we see ourselves, and here we are living our life, meeting our individual unique moments of experience, how do we understand them? Okay. We can only understand them from the way we have been taught, what we have learned. So, <clears throat> after my schooling of, uh, you know, public school, then I went to university, and I went to a year of law school, and then I retired from schooling and went to live in a commune to recover from all of that schooling. So I'm living in this commune and we were together in this commune because we were all fans of the Grateful Dead and Pink Floyd. So we were partaking of the sacrament as necessary to keep the, uh, keep the uh, spiritual practice going. So when one of the women from the commune heard about this retreat, didn't know it was a retreat, about where they were going to teach mindfulness, she decided she wanted to go. I said, well, I could use a holiday. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'd go too. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I'd never, I'd never meditated one minute. I never read a meditation book. Didn't know anything about Buddha or Buddhism. Didn't know anybody who meditated. But I was going to this thing. I thought it was a holiday. And when we got there, it was a two-week meditation retreat just like this. <laughs> so... I was listening to the talks and the instruction, and I started practicing without having the least idea about what I was doing or how to even understand my experience. Because my whole, not my whole life, but my recent history up to that point was doing drugs, getting high, having some distorted kind of you know, psychedelic weird experience, something, something, just trying to break, break the mold and break, break the habit of 
the conditioning of my growing up. So I thought, practicing meditation, you're supposed to get high. You're supposed to have some kind of, you know, kind of drug-like experience. So that's how I was monitoring, measuring my experience. I failed. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have any drug-like experience. It was just painful. You know, as we, as we know it is. It's just painful and, you know, restless mind, restless body. And it's like, I did not know how to understand my experience. I didn't even know what to expect. And even when I did have an experience, I didn't know, I didn't know how to understand it. Because I didn't, I didn't have that conditioning. I just thought about it wrongly. So, what wrong views, what wrong thoughts do we now have about our practice? What are you trying to get out of meditation? What do you think it's for? What do you think you're supposed to do? What do you think? How do you understand your experiences? That's important, because that's where right view and right thought comes into play. Dana Goleman, friend and colleague, a great, great writer of the interface between psychology and dharma, in one of his earliest books, The Varieties of Meditation, Meditative Experience, he writes about our normal conditioned personality consciousness. And he says this, normal consciousness is often highly unhealthy with a general heaviness and unwieldiness of mental processes where the force of habit predominates and changes and adaptations are undertaken slowly and unwillingly and to the smallest possible degree. Thought is rigid and inclined to dogma. It often takes a long time to learn from one's experience or advice. Affections and aversions are fixed and biased, and in general, the character proves more or less inaccessible. Did you recognize anything? <laughs> that's, our, that's, that's our conditioned personality. You know, before Dharma practice. We have these views and opinions and biases and assumptions and expectations about life that we learn from mom and dad and peers and our own deluded, not understood experiences. So when we hear the Buddha's teachings, it kind of doesn't fit. It's like, wow, it's, you know, it doesn't, it, 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 as I mentioned earlier, it's like too subscribe to the Buddha's way of understanding things is going to take you against the stream, against the stream of your conditioning, against this bias, against this dogma, against these fixed affections and aversions, to confront them, to really see where are these coming from. And the way we're going to find them is through our own archaeology of our own heart. You can read in a book, you can read Dharma books, you can find out all that stuff. But that doesn't tell you how it is for you. You know, each one of us has to do this work of cultivating right thought, right view. That's the, that's the work. This is the development of the Eightfold Path. Each one of us has to develop. So what is the right thoughts for this kind of practice? What is the right 
attitude to bring to this kind of practice? How should we approach this kind of practice? You know, we can, we can get a technique, and, and many teachers offer techniques. You know, pay attention to the breath, focus on the breath, be as continuous as you can, label it. I mean, this is what I taught for 30 years, I know. So, so do that. And we can get very good at a technique. We can become a perfect, te- not perfect, but a pretty good technician and still not understand our experience correctly. There are a lot of meditative techniques, but becoming a technician doesn't really address wrong thoughts. Because we can have a lot of ambition. We can do a lot of striving. We can be very competitive in our meditation. Right? We've all done that. Those are wrong thoughts. Those are not the way to develop the right thoughts that lead to right views. So, when we read the when we read the the Buddha's words on right thought, which in in turn becomes right intention, how we how we how we're motivated to, to act, and our right attitudes in practice, how we approach practice, the way we the kinds of thoughts with which we encourage ourselves to practice. He said there's three kinds. Three kinds of right thoughts. The first is thoughts of goodwill. This is loving kindness. Right? Thoughts of goodwill. Now, when he says there's three kinds of thoughts, thoughts of goodwill is not just towards others, it's towards ourselves, it's towards every experience we have. And so when we look at the qualities of loving kindness, that could be reflected in our attitudes of mind, what do we see? To be open, to be interested. You know, if you fall in love with someone, you're open, you're interested, you're receptive to them, you're kind of uh, allowing them, you acknowledge them, you're patient with them, you're appreciative of them. These are the qualities of mind with which to practice with which to approach your own experiences. Open, patient, acknowledging, interested. And yet, as we know, so many of us have a very critical, you know, this is not good practice. I don't want this experience. I don't want this pain. Get rid of that. I don't want this aversion. Get rid of that. Not patient, not allowing, not open, not receptive, not uh, appreciative, and definitely not calm. So, if we're practicing with that kind of judgmental, non-loving, non-open, non-accepting, non-patient attitudes of mind, it's not going to work. That's what we're cultivating. If that's the attitude of mind that we're practicing with, that's what we're actually cultivating, is a critical, judgmental, intolerant mind. So this is one of the things we need to look at when we when we practice is what's my attitude of mind? How am I practicing here? What's the energy with which I'm practicing? Am I open? Am I allowing? Am I interested? Am I patient? Or if I got an agenda, like I'm gonna get it, I'm gonna not do that, I'm gonna make this happen and not do that. Wrong attitude. Second kind of right thought, or second field of right thought that the Buddha mentioned is uh, 
thoughts of renunciation. This is letting go. Letting go. And so much of practice is about letting go. And we have to understand that letting go is not pushing away. Letting go is really something like, let it be. Don't entangle yourself with it. Things arise due to causes and conditions. You know, the geese honk, the people go by, they're making loud noises. You know, things happen. So, what's our right thought? What's our right attitude towards them? Let it be. Don't entangle yourself with it. Don't get involved in liking it or disliking it, blaming somebody for it, or wanting more of it. Don't, don't get involved. Just let it be. This is renunciation. Let it go. Be relaxed. Whatever happens, relax. Relax the mind, I mean. You know, and then, if you have no expectation, no anticipation, no indulgence, no embellishment, no disappointment, if you're just willing and allowing, then you can let go of your expectations, you can let go of your anticipations, you can let go of your indulgence in you know, the pleasant things that happen. You can let go of disappointment. So we have to watch, again, look at our attitude of mind. Is there expectation? Is there anticipation? Is there indulging in the pleasantness that we sometimes feel in meditation? Or can we let this just be? Just let this be. Let this be. Don't get involved in it. So, checking your attitude of mind will reveal if there's some willingness to let things be. Or if there's you know, kind of leaning forward, I want this, I don't want that, and expectation, and looking. And if, you do, and if there is, you can see that you're pulled off balance. You know, when you're, when you're expecting or anticipating, you're, you're kind of leaning forward. When you're resisting and disappointed, and, you know, you're kind of pushing away. And both of those postures are <coughs> not in balance. They're entangled in it somehow. So there's thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of renunciation, or the attitudes of loving-kindness, the attitudes of letting go. And the third quality, the third kinds of thoughts are harmless. Do no harm. Do no harm to yourself, and do no harm to others. And what this means is, towards our own experience, it arises in our body, it arises in our mind. How can we do no harm to our own experience? Be non-judgmental. Be willing, willing to experience this. Being uh, non-resistant to it, knowing that things arise due to their causes and conditions, not your goodness or badness or wishes or whatever. Things have their own nature, their own life, if you will. To be willing to endure and to sustain your interest in that which is boring. Again, to be at ease and to be alert. These are ways of not harming yourself or not harming others. So when we practice, we almost have to consider every experience that we that arises due to causes and conditions in the present moment, consider every experience as some part of ourself or some, some, something to become intimate with rather than harm in any way, being really careful not to harm through our judgment, through our energy, through dismissiveness. And it's hard because, you know, there's a lot of unpleasantness in life. Unpleasant body sensations, mental states, 
unpleasant thoughts, anxiety about the future, fear of the future, all kinds of things. But what this, what the Buddha is saying, with these kinds of right thoughts, to develop this path of liberation, we have to kind of work with our attitudes of mind. How can we recognize these unskillful attitudes of mind and change them? We have to look. We have to recognize. We have to be willing to acknowledge ourselves that, you know, I'm really, you know, trying, I'm really expecting something good. I'm really, I'm really indulging in this. I really don't want that. And we have to you know, kind of see things as they really are. Not, not deceive ourselves, not pretend otherwise. We just kind of be rather sober, actually, about it all. Now, when I talk about right thoughts or right attitudes of mind, even though you can hear all these words, <clears throat> often people say, yeah, but how do I, how do, I do this? What do I, how do I recognize my attitude of mind? I, I, I don't know. Well, I have a, I have a surefire, fail-proof uh, technique for recognizing your attitude of mind. Okay? Everybody got, a, everybody got a, a cell phone? I mean, a smartphone? Right? You know, you take your smartphone, you turn it on to selfie, you take a selfie, right? You make it into an emoji. What is it saying? You know, if it's going, snap, make it emoji. What's that attitude of mind? Just look at your own face. We can see our attitude of mind written on our face. If you're indulging in something, you're kind of like this. If you're resistant to something, you're kind of like that. If you're afraid of something, you're like that. If you take a selfie, make it emoji, you'll see your attitude of mind. Keep it simple. That's not a very good thing. Actually, it is a good thing. So these are, this is the first the first factor of the wisdom training in the Eightfold Path, right thought, which we work with most directly here in our attitude of mind towards practice. <clears throat>